Hello, this is Clark Carr, and Clark Reads Books. Thank you for letting me read to you again from my book, Tom Fool Traveler. Here is Chapter 10, Love Your Enemies. At last I was flying into Tehran. Securing my visa had been a bureaucratic hill to climb. Although I had been personally invited by a prestigious Iranian doctor, my application for a visa had stalled. I can't remember what country was handling Iranian affairs for the U.S., but this was when pretty much no one was supposed to be having business dealings with Iran, and only family members were traveling there. The U.S.-Iranian relationship was in a cold war with hot stones simmering somewhere deep under the ice. In the arcane visa application process, my papers had not succeeded in leaving the desk of functionary number 23, whose job it was to look at my photo and compare it to my application and letters of introduction, and suss out from that the hidden CIA-infused lies and the plot behind it all. Maybe things haven't changed so much since that day. In any case, I had had to leave on my business trip, which had other destinations and had wound up in New Delhi. My next leg would be to fly into Iran and be driven up to participate in a university conference north on the shores of the Caspian Sea. India had formal relations with Iran, so I had gone several times to the Iranian embassy in New Delhi, where I met with functionaries number 11, number 17, and number 46. They were functionarily polite, which is its own art form. Yes, there is no reason your visa should not be approved, but why didn't you apply a year in advance? A year? I was only invited by one of your own countrymen six months ago. I applied then, six months in advance. Surely that is enough time. Ancient Hittite black eyebrows move slightly toward each other. You are aware of the strained relations between our countries. Yes, sir, I am aware, but I am not a party to that. I am going to your country as part of the solution, an individual citizen coming to help, to learn, and contribute my small bit at a science conference. And what is this conference to concern? Complementary and traditional medicine. And will you contribute to the complementary or the traditional part of this conference? And so on in the visa application minuet. You are supposed to have learned in your travels over many lifetimes to restrain your urge to bash with your mace the living hell out of the skull of some paper-wielding non-entity, or alternatively to cleave him in half with your broadsword. I reveal here the nature of my boyhood games, played with friends or by myself with imaginary friends. The sticky, ineluctable truth is that paper mongers have powers far superior to maces and broadswords. Keepers of in-baskets and holders of stamps are the doorkeepers, the gatekeepers. You can't enter the walled city or fortress without their permission. They are the ones that check the box, or sadly inform you that they cannot check the box, and therefore you and your entire family or people will have to be burned to ash. One would laugh, but it is 
so not funny. World War I and half a dozen other great wars have precipitated out of such paper impasses. And I quote, Petitioner's Letter. O high and mighty, most noble one, we would like to exist. Please check the box and approve our right to exist. Thanking you most kindly, your subservient one. Responding to Petitioner, Dear subservient one, we have received your letter of date. We do not understand what you want. Your most humble servant, high and mighty. Petitioner, Dear High and Mighty, we want to survive. All you have to do is check that box in the upper right corner, the one that says, okay, can survive. Respectfully, Subservient. Responding to Petitioner, Dear Subservient, we have received your second letter of date. We can understand that you want us to check can survive box, but we do not have the right to check that box. Most helpfully yours, Mighty. Petitioner. Dear Mighty, Okay, we have got to have that box checked, or our entire village is doomed. We're nice people. We raise goats and grow some grain. You have probably dined on one of our goats. Who do we contact to get Can Survive box checked? Trusting in your kindness and perspicacity, subservient. Responding to Petitioner, in receipt of your last request, we cannot help you. We don't know who checks that box. There has unfortunately been another shift in 14th floor bureaucracy. We are only 11th floor. May we suggest you try someone on floor 12? Yours so very sincerely, master of all you survey. Petitioner, who on the 12th floor? Signed, subservient. Responding to petitioner, if we knew the name, we would already have written same. We suggest to, to whom it may concern, 12th floor, your master for all time. End quote. It is usually at this point that revolt and revolution break out. Eventually, bureaucracies on both sides of the border or wall will be reduced to galley slavery, and those left living will gather up whatever goats or grain husks have survived and get on with it. Me? I was in New Delhi, talking with my own functionary number X. What I was probably supposed to do was slip some bakshis between the pages of my well-worn passport, but I have this deep aversion to graft. Too many years pretending to be a broomstick cowboy in the American Southwest. I saw my father do this skillfully a gazillion times in different parts of northern Mexico or at restaurants or hotels. But, well, it is easier to dole out the fragrant emoluments that oil human machinery when you have said catches of bakshis. Otherwise, being one of the unwashed poor, you just, well... Stand and refuse to go away. That works, too. Only two days before my flight was supposed to leave for Iran, the paper gods smiled on me and I picked up my multi-stamped permissions. Now, here I was, descending into the recently opened Imam Khomeini International Airport. Of course, it was around midnight. 
What better time to arrive in the country where a mob kidnapped everyone in your country's embassy a couple dozen years before? Everyone else on the plane was whisked through customs like Aladdin on his rug. Yours truly was left sitting alone in that bare white room, what else to expect, where they had detoured me as soon as they looked at my passport. It was 1 a.m. when Iranian investigator number one came in and took my fingerprints. All fingers, both hands. Would you like to ask me any questions, I asked. He looked at me like he understood that my lip flapping had meaning, but it was unknown to him. He left. Thirty minutes later, Iranian investigator number two entered. He sat and cut to the chase. Why are you really here? Sir, you have seen my letters of introduction. I am here to attend a science conference. And we Iranians are not advanced enough to conduct our own science conferences? You would think I would make this stuff up. I thought he was making it up. It was too ridiculous. I couldn't even go there. If I was going to get into this country, we had to just talk like people. This, I naively continue to assert around the world, is the American way. At least it's my American way. Sir, I know that your country and my country are unfriendly to one another. I am sorry about that. I am not here representing my country. I am here representing science and medicine, vitamins, minerals, things that help regular people feel better, heal faster, that sort of thing. Now you can either recognize that and let me get on with it, or you can just say that you Iranians are not interested in sharing your knowledge with other people in the world. There will be people from all over the Middle East and Asia at this conference. But, investigator number two said, I doubt there will be other Americans. Why did they invite you? They didn't. One of your most prestigious doctors did. He has met me and thinks I have something to share with his colleagues. He's probably waiting downstairs for me right now. There are three people waiting for you right now. They are not your doctor, but they are other doctors. So he had been doing his research. Well, there we are. So what is your decision, sir? It's getting late for both of us. He looked at me, then got up and took all my ten fingerprints again. Do you have to do this, I asked. This is how your country treats us when we go into your country. Well, hell, it's stupid for us to do it. You don't have to copy our bad manners. That made him smile, a hint of a smile which he immediately suppressed. He went out. Thirty minutes later, investigator number one came in and said, I could leave. He was so sorry for any inconvenience, and he hoped I would enjoy the beauty of his country and the fine intelligence of his people. Wow, I was impressed. He had gotten a lot from his good manners to amend earlier bad manners class. My hosts downstairs were relieved to see me. They shook their heads and apologized. I told them it was a worldwide blight. Iran didn't have the copyright on bad manners. Metaphors get mixed up at 2 a.m. in foreign climes. I slept in a hotel in Tehran that night. Next morning, I discovered Tehran looked like a modern city anywhere. Better than Moscow and Cairo, but not New York or London. There were young people selling American jeans and other Western stuff 
on the street. Life is life. Live it. While our national governments duel like icebergs bumping against one another, ordinary people like us just live their lives. We drove up to the Caspian. Nice highway, interesting little towns and eateries along the way. I always want to buy up entire spice shops with their wooden barrels and pottery jugs filled with rainbows of aromas. Your nose takes over and tells you that none of this can be found back home. You must right now inhale the entire garden of bouquets to take with you. I experienced the same sensory overwhelm in Jordan, in Indonesia, in India. Noses should be our ambassadors. You enter a new space, someone throws spice in the air, you inhale, nod your head, and formally check the box that this country and its people are now approved to exist. Simple. It works with boys and girls who paint themselves with scents for each other's pleasure. It could work with countries. Anyway, we arrived at our seaside destination. I was put into a quaint carved wood panels hotel like an Iranian version of the Brown Hotel in Denver. Old-time high style. I liked it. But the next morning my host came back, heads hanging. Unfortunately, I would not be able to stay at this hotel. The authorities had ordered that all foreign guests attending the conference were invited to stay at the Caspian summer camp. Summer camp, I asked. It was winter. What camp? It's where the Iranian secret police go to have fun in the summer, one of the doctors said. Well, that sounds like fun to me, I chirped. We drove to the university where the conference would be held. Very modern. Looked like any modern campus. Outside, there were a couple old buses with armed military guards standing either side of the doors. We get a military escort I had to quip. The buses drove us all to the camp, last thing at night, and back to the university, first thing each morning, always with guards. Ideas are dangerous things. Have to keep a gun on them. It was a camp like summer camps young teenagers attend all over the world. Rustic cabins, a central eating establishment, outside tables, a walkway by the Caspian. One modest difference was that this summer camp was surrounded by high barbed wire and had armed guards at its gate who videoed us coming and going. I guessed that I wouldn't be doing any solo walks wandering around the university town. The conference over the next few days had similarities and differences to science conferences elsewhere. Similarities. Big amphitheater-style seating, standard introductions, panel discussions, droning, monotonous science presentations, carefully controlled so that the speaker didn't let it be thought he actually cared about what he was presenting, slides, PowerPoints. Differences? Well, the first was a big one. On both sides of the stage were 40-foot-high, black-draped pictures of the present and last ayatollahs. I did some serious trigonometry on those drapes. They were eight feet wide and at least 40 feet high. They created a bad impression on me, I am sorry to say. To the Western eye, you can't but call that facial expression anything but a scowl. I'm sure it comes off differently if these are your revered leaders. 
Dantesque comes to mind, threatening hot, post-mortal regions. Clearly, that was the point. Remember where you are and what you say, the faces emanated, because someone is watching. Interestingly, no one else attending the conference seemed to notice the 40-foot faces. I believe they were pretending not to. Me, I was a bit cowed. There's no parallel in Western culture, not at science conferences. Maybe there is, I just don't like going there. Maybe I had a guilty conscience for earlier sins. Those scowls could summon up anything from your past for which you should be repentant. Of course, there were clerics who prayed and recited elegant verses from the Holy Quran, a practice I have long appreciated for its lyric melody, even though I understand only a word or two. Theirs is a religious country, that they would frame their science conference with their own culture as their right. The presentations themselves, I was relieved to find, were just science talks. Mine, of course, got into show and tell and live demonstrations, which got the presenters to ask me to do another session later where more people could come and have some American-style fun. The conference was engrossing. It was a review across the whole vista of medical science, modern to ancient, from the perspective of exactly where we were, modern Persia. Complementary meant new ideas like mine about new uses of vitamins and minerals. The traditional medicine was fascinatingly stuff going all the way back to Galen and Avicenna. Of course, there was some Indian Ayurvedic and Chinese herbal medicine. We are familiar with these in the West, and many people accept them as alternative treatment. I do. But I did not know that there were people still looking at the usefulness of remedies that date back to the first century Roman surgeon and physician, Galen, who later became the foundation of medieval medicine in the West. Then there was Avicenna, properly named Abu Ali al-Hussein ibn Abdallah ibn Sina. A mouthful, admittedly, he was a Persian polymath, master of pretty much all the science and knowledge of his time, a skillful medical doctor, philosopher, and theologian of the Arabic Golden Age. We have too easily forgotten his 11th century genius. Sultans and caliphs were enamored of his insights and wit, and invited or required his presence at their courts. He spent the last part of his life, as I remember, fleeing from the grasp of one of the more powerful moguls. He valued his freedom of mind. There's a lurid story of his being trapped out in the desert by one of their legendary dust storms when he was racing away from one padishah to seek protection with another. He and his companions lay their camels down and hid in the lee, stomach side, from the stinging, killing sand. One of Avicenna's friends foolishly glanced up above his camel to see what was what and was blown up into the air and away, never to be seen again. Those were the days of philosophy. The mixture of past and present, east and west, mostly east, made for a unique conference experience. Once Iran and America make nice with one another again, we should invite them over and have a similar conference in the West. We have Native American and South American remedies, and also the whole hoo-ha of our own alternative medicine, some of which mine is wonderful, and some of which other people's is questionable. 
But throughout, we had the defiant ayatollahs threatening every word. The audience included regular medical doctors, male and female, clerics, professors, visitors from countries around Persia, including India and Pakistan. No one else from Europe. No one else from America. No wonder the customs officials screened me so carefully. After one particularly insightful talk, I went down front to greet the woman doctor who had presented. She was dressed in Western style with a headscarf. I impulsively reached my hand out to shake hers, saw her look, and withdrew it and sort of put it over my heart like a klutz, trying to show that I really admired her talk. She was very appreciative. She and some other women asked if they could have their picture taken with me. Sure, I said. So they gathered three feet to one side of me and three feet to the other, big gaps, leaned in happily and snap, that was the picture. They'll have to show it landscape style, we're all spread out. At one point, the conference originators asked that I join a panel discussion. There were a number of speakers and we were asked to comment as appropriate from our varied perspectives. During one unique talk, someone presented evidence that bloodletting had modern uses. Practiced for over a thousand years, this treatment was adopted and used universally throughout the West in the Middle Ages, usually accomplished with leeches placed on the skin. A leech was another name for a doctor, too. The red trailing down our barber poles signifies blood. Barbers had the sharpest knives. Before you laugh, think about the importance we still give today to getting toxins out of our bodies and selves. Here were documented uses for occasional bloodletting for similar purposes, to stimulate the immune system, etc. The speaker then dropped a comment, of course, we would never use this on babies. Their bodies are simply too small. Immediately, a black-clad cleric stood up and shouted that what the doctor had just said about bloodletting being not for babies was not in the Koran. Well, whether it's there or not, said the doctor, bravely or perhaps unwisely, this is common science now. We've learned a lot more about infant bodies. But it's not in the Holy Koran. Another scientist stood up in the audience and started arguing with the cleric about modern science not having to be restrained to Holy Scripture. Others stood up. It was a goodly fracas. Did I catch the Ayatollahs cracking a smile? I was enjoying it too, wondering what the hell, just as long as I could stay out of it. It was not like we are immune to such arguments in the West. I found it interesting to observe their disputation from the perspective of ours over another holy book. Suddenly, the lead panelist gaveled the audience to silence. Enough, he said, then turned, oh no, to me. Perhaps our esteemed colleague, Dr. Nixdorf, would like to comment on this quandary. All eyes and ears were on me. Now I knew the Ayatollahs were smiling. Here I had been sitting, smirking to myself, and they were now calling on me to help them out of this morass. These people had courage and were willing to stand up and say what they believed. God knows what the consequence. What could I say that would not betray my ignorance or personal bias? 
I was way out of my depth in terms of any nuances or subtleties of the Koran or even what was the current state of science versus scripture in Persia. And I damn sure wasn't going to comment on bloodletting. All ears waiting, smiling, expectant faces in the audience. I thought for a moment. Okay, here we go. First, I admitted that I was utterly unequipped to comment on Islamic religious thought. Nor should I, even if I knew more than I did. However, I continued, why are we here? We are scientists and doctors, clerics and common people like me. All of us gathered together to learn from one another. I heard earlier today that nearly a million people are still dying every year from malaria, particularly in impoverished countries, but someone here presented a possible traditional remedy that may be of service. Instead of arguing about points that doubtfully can be resolved, shouldn't we put our attention on things we can do, on lives we can save? Applause, standing even. Lord, I thought I made it through that one. Most of the people in the room were, were of an open mind and really wanted to learn from one another, but not everybody, hence the reason for manners and polite discourse. I guess I did okay, as no soldiers marched in and shot me on the spot. I was not arrested that night, so that was good, too. That's why they pay me the big bucks. The summer camp, where all the international attendees were staying, literally all, had its merits. That it was winter made it seem rather bleak, but seashore is seashore. The Caspian has gentle waves, and I enjoyed walking along it, imagining Russia on the far side, evoking wooden ships of ancient design sailing across the waters. My little cabin was bare, but it demonstrated Persian priorities by what was there and what wasn't. There was a metal golden arrow on the ceiling. It didn't take me long to figure out that that pointed to Mecca. There was a useful little wash-your-clothes kit with a scrub brush, hard pebbly soap, and strings that could be pulled across to hang your laundry. There was a little black-and-white TV. Late one night, I turned it on to see what was what. There were clerics reciting or delivering sermons. There was something that looked like a modern Persian soap opera. Then there were Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy, really. Popular enough to be shown at midnight, 70 to 80 years later, in a foreign land. What was a gas was the Persian overdubbing. We know the musical silly voices of skinny Stan Laurel squeaking his impossible squeak to express his fear and dismay, and plump Oliver Hardy gruffly expressing his disgust. Here they were with voices that didn't come close to duplicating the original, missing by a mile. Nevertheless, I could imagine Iranians throughout the country watching this ancient American comic team sleepily lying in their beds, chuckling together or laughing out loud at the universal stupidity and delightful antics. I knew that if this was what Persians wanted to watch when they relaxed, our mutual peoples were going to come to an understanding sometime in the future. I was proud of those old fools, ambassadors extraordinaire. In the daytime, between lectures, or at lunch and dinner, conference participants would get out of the hall and walk around the part of the university campus that was allowed us. I was amused to find myself very popular, the only American, after all. 
Dozens of young college students wanted to practice their English. They would come to me in ones, twos, and groups. Two young men came up and just launched in. Surely, Dr. Nix, you must admit that Islam is the most modern and the best religion. I had to laugh out loud. Shades of the priceless, absurd college discussions of yesteryear. First, I repeated, endlessly, I was not a doctor. And then I told them they couldn't try to inveigle me into an argument about religion. But we are all sons of Abraham. First, there was Judaism. And then there was Isa, Jesus, and Christianity. And then the last, and hence most appropriate to now, the Prophet Muhammad, blessed be his name, and Islam. You have to admit. And I said, no, I didn't have to admit, and changed the subject. One young woman came to me with a distressed face. She was studying to be a pharmacist. Wonderful, I said. No, she said. She wanted to be an actress. Oh, I said. She desperately wanted to act, but her parents would kill her, etc. What was she to do? Please tell her. Wow, screwed again. I couldn't say anything. I didn't know if this was a trap, get the American to speak against parents. I didn't allow myself to get paranoid, but this young lady was really upset. What could I say to help? Universal values to the fore. Think of something. She's asking for help. You haven't told your parents anything about this? Anything? No, I could not. Do they know that you're even studying acting? No. Well, listen, I myself used to be an actor, and sometimes even now I do something. You can do two things or more in life, you know. I am a speaker, and I know a few things about vitamins, but I'm also a writer and an actor. You could be a pharmacist and an actress. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Oh, but I want to act. Well, do you have friends that your parents know that are studying acting with you? Yes. Why don't you all get together and work out some silly sketch for a holiday about your families, something you can act out together in fun in your living room that everyone would laugh at, something not serious. And then you could sit down and say, you enjoy doing this sometimes, just for fun. But it's not for fun. It's serious. My art must be my life. Wow. She took those words right out of my own youthful mouth. I had thought and felt the same. My art is my life. I must, must, must not prostitute myself to mammon, but dedicate myself to my artistness. Otherwise, I'll die. Well, I hadn't died. And somehow I hadn't prostituted myself either. Life finds a way. I wished her well and told her that her parents surely loved her. She would be clever enough to find a way to sneak some theater into her living room. She went away with a beatific smile. I should have charged her the big bucks. After the conference, we drove back to Tehran, where I visited the great National Museum of Iran. Inside were markers of significant moments in mankind's history. Mankind was very proud once, very proud indeed. There was the magnificent stele of Sargon II, erected to commemorate his sixth campaign against other countries, including Media, Assad, Abad, Hamadan, 716 B.C., 
a very precise date, I thought, for so long ago. Those countries were still existent after his earlier five campaigns, hence commemorating his sixth. All of them, including Sargon, are gone now. But if we are ever invaded from outer space, I do predict that the commander of the mothership will be named Sargon III. Sargon, what a name. There was even more impressive cuneiform carved black slab from Persepolis, declaring, I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries with myriad forms of humans, king on this earth far and wide. Go, Xerxes. Good beards those days. Who knew they would come back in style, especially in America? What I loved most was the extensive collection of elegant blown glass, particularly the nose vases, designed for a person to put his or her whole face into and inhale. What perfumes, aromas, wines, what were they inhaling in these delicately fashioned devices in order to capture the evanescent moment? It must have been something. At the international airport, preparing to leave, I was nervous, ready to go. I had loved my visit. I had learned a lot. But I was back at that frosty edge between Iran and the world, where it has always been touchy. Who are you and who are we? Should we conquer you or are you going to conquer us? I wasn't the only one nervous. Seemed everyone was looking over his or her shoulder. Should we be detained at the last minute? No reason why, but still. Something confirmed this when finally we boarded the plane and they closed and sealed the cabin door. In a flash, all throughout the plane, scarves flew off heads and women were laughing and shaking out their hair. Freedom has meant different things at different times, but letting down your hair may be the simplest summation of one form of it. There was more of a certain kind of space inside the plane now than there had been outside it. We felt free. Thank you for listening. Tom Fool Traveler is available in print or electronic editions on Amazon. If you liked this, please let others know about my podcast, Clark Reads Books. I've been very lucky to travel a good deal, and Tom Fool Traveler is just a few of my silly adventures. Please come back for the next installment of Tom Fool Traveler, Chapter 11, Fool's Luck.